Hello, and welcome to the June 8th edition of Ukraine Without Hype, where we take a look at the biggest stories of the week from Ukraine and the region. I'm Romeo Kokransky, and beside me is my colleague, Anthony Bardaway. Hello, listeners. The first story we have is about maybe the biggest problem oligarch in the country, Viktor Medvedchuk. Then we'll cover a few updates out of Belarus and the increasing repressions against journalists and the country as a whole. Another episode, another profile of a corruption year. But this week, Romeo, you have put together a story of one who might possibly be facing justice. Well, we can only hope. Viktor Medvedchuk, one of Ukraine's infamous media moguls, owner, well, soon to be former at this rate, of a variety of media outlets in the country, including 112UA, Zeke, and others, and leader of the pro-Russian opposition platform for Life Party, is facing charges of treason and misuse of state resources. Medvedchuk has been a constant figure in Ukrainian politics since even the Soviet era, when he, as a lawyer, was involved in, quote-unquote, defending famed Soviet dissident and poet Vasil Stus, and this pro-Russian position has informed Medvedchuk's political leanings since then. On May 11th, Medvedchuk's offices, including the party headquarters, were raided by law enforcement, at the same time that Ukrainian Prosecutor General Irina Venediktova published official charges against him on her Facebook page. That same day, during a briefing, the Security Service of Ukraine, or SPU, head Ivan Bakanov, stated that Medvedchuk had passed along secret information about Ukrainian armed forces deployments to Russia. Quoting Bakanov here, in particular, Medvedchuk sent Taras Kozak, who at the time was located in Russian Federation territory and is likely there now, classified information on the deployment of secret military divisions of the armed forces, their personnel complement, and battle readiness. End quote. So what have been the consequences for him so far while in the investigation process? Medvedchuk was placed under house arrest on May 13th, though the prosecutor general's office has continued to push for harsher detention measures. Specifically, they want imprisonment with bail set at 300 million grivnias. That's about $11 million in U.S. terms. Medvedchuk's alleged confederate, Kozak, remains at large, though if the SBU's beliefs about his current location are true, then it's unlikely that he'll be taken into custody. Medvedchuk's assets have already been seized, and his accounts have been frozen, leaving the media mogul without his media. It's never been a secret what Medvedchuk is. What led to this seemingly sudden crackdown? Kozak and Medvedchuk are both considered to be oligarchs, and this is a term in Ukraine that's applied to incredibly rich individuals who have significant influence over Ukrainian politics, culture, and business, and they usually own one or more media outlets. These oligarchs are often blamed for Ukraine's ills, and most of them made their fortune during the laissez-faire days of the 90s, when the line between business and gangsterism was impossible to discern. Innumerable corruption scandals, fraud, and other charges have often been levied against these oligarchs, but until now, they always seemed untouchable. Then, on May 14th, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky published an op-ed in the Ukrainian magazine Focus. He titled it Minus Medvedchuk, What Does the De-Oligarchization Policy Mean and Who's Next? The article points out in very stark terms the harm that Ukraine's oligarch-led political economic system has brought to the country and its people. Quoting Zelensky here, By curtailing the power of the oligarchs and preventing them from blackmailing the state, we will create a fair Ukraine that is truly competitive on the global stage and able to defend its sovereignty effectively. 
He noted in the article that we all know the names of the oligarchs that run the country. Now, a few days later, on May 17th, Ukrainian investigative journalist Denise Bihos announced that he'd uncovered audio recordings of Medvedchuk having conversations with members of the Luhansk and Donetsk armed militias, as well as with the Kremlin in 2014, and that Medvedchuk himself allegedly claimed on these recordings to be doing so at the behest of then-Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko and Russian President Vladimir Putin. These recordings were denounced by both Medvedchuk, who called them a quote, factory of fakes and provocation, and the former president's party, European Solidarity, which accused the office of the president, that is, Zelensky, of attempting to, quote, discredit the most important pro-European opposition force. Now, Poroshenko did admit that he used Medvedchuk for what he calls informal negotiations with Russia, but specifically only for hostage negotiations, and that anything else, says European Solidarity, is a lie. Do you think Poroshenko could be pulled into this investigation? Much of this happened under his watch, even if he wasn't directly involved. And he has his own big business holdings. He himself is an oligarch. Yeah, Poroshenko um, is an oligarch, and the de-oligarchization policy, there's no way that he would be spared. His most well-known holdings are the Candy Maker Roshan and media outlet Channel 5. And he's very often been at odds with the man who beat him in the 2020 presidential elections. And that bad blood between himself and Zelensky has sparked into legal action on numerous occasions. Though it is important to note that none of the cases that Zelensky's prosecutor general and Justice Department have raised against Poroshenko have gone anywhere. They've basically just foundered in administrative hell. During his presidency, however, Poroshenko handled his fellow oligarchs with a very light touch, except for actions taken against oligarch Igor Kolomoisky, who is accused of perpetuating a $5.5 billion fraud at Ukraine's biggest bank, Privabank, while Kolomoisky was the main shareholder of that bank. And this light touch extended to Medvedchuk, whose media channels were actually saved from sanction by Poroshenko's non-enforcement against them in 2019. What kind of situation does Medvedchuk see himself in now? Is he still able to act politically to defend himself? Without the help of his TV channels and other assorted media outlets, spinning the current treason charges will be a much more difficult challenge than perhaps it would have been before. Medvedchuk's first day in court on May 21st was notable less for what went on inside the courtroom. He denied all the charges and he denied any accusation of being pro-Russian and more for what occurred outside. In a flashback to the 90s, the court was surrounded by, quote, athletic young men in dark clothes who physically blocked journalists from attending the open hearing. MP Ilya Kiva, who listeners may remember from the time he bought a doctorate degree, alleged that these men were, quote, Ukrainian citizens sharing their desires to make our country an independent and strong state. These are members of the Patriots for Life organization and anti-fascist movement, end quote. However, it wasn't entirely clear how exactly these men were sharing these desires, aside from occupying the public space at the court steps. And images like these are very likely to give an impetus to this nascent de-oligarchization movement. And I just want to note that de-oligarchization, the movement politically may be new, but it is a feeling that is widely shared by the majority of Ukrainians. 
but it tends to lose steam as oligarchs reassert their control over Ukraine's political and economic life. And while Zelensky himself may not be an oligarch, he's been credibly accused of having close connections to Kolomoisky. In fact, Zelensky's previous career as a comedian took place almost entirely on the Kolomoisky-owned OnePlus One channel. Quoting Zelensky here, uh, once again from the article, our goal is to prevent destructive concentrations of power and resources while guaranteeing the equality of all Ukrainian citizens before the law. If we succeed, we can end decades of poverty and finally shed Ukraine's artificial status as one of Europe's poorest countries, end quote. And of course, that goal is one Ukrainians undoubtedly need to achieve and have needed to achieve for the decades since independence. But Medvedchuk could be said to be an easy target. His pro-Russian connections and his personal familial history with Putin is well-documented. Poroshenko Kolomoisky Renat Akhmedov, who is Ukraine's richest man and the so-called Don of Donbass, Dmitro Firtash, and all the other names known so well by Ukrainians as the oligarchs running and robbing the country will prove to be much harder to take down, and it's unlikely they're going to just happily step aside in favor of the country's interests of their own. So this question of what oligarchs or which oligarchs will be gone after is the main one to me. Because if you look back at the rise of the Putin system, what you saw was him saying that he was going to tackle the problem of oligarchs. Now, in the end, most of the oligarchs were just absorbed into the Putin system. But what he did was that he singled out individuals who are more problematic to the country and decided to... To himself, you mean. To himself. The find find the, the oligarchs who are most problematic to himself, which tended to be the most powerful ones, such as Mikhail Khodorovsky, who is currently uh, a Russian opposition leader, uh, exiled from the country, essentially. Putin went after him because he was more independently powerful I can't help but see the outlines of that happening right here, unless there is a serious and concerted effort to take down the oligarch system as a whole, which is difficult and may not happen. It'll just be taking down the oligarchs who are inconvenient to the government while leaving the ones that play nice, such as Akhmetov, alone. A consolidation of that sort is, of course, a risk. At the same time, going after the oligarchs, or at least partially uh, some of the oligarchs, was also a goal of the Yanukovych government. But he could never build enough personal support to really rival or threaten any of them. And Zelensky, unlike Yanukovych, has a lot less power. Yanukovych seized a lot of power, and his corrupt system allowed him to exercise that power in ways that Zelensky, who is very much bound both by public opinion and by Western pressure, doesn't have access. It's hard to see Zelensky pulling off a Putin-esque maneuver. However, it's also hard to see how Zelensky will go after oligarchs who are not easy targets. So looking at Zelensky's history with Poroshenko, we've already seen that Zelensky has run into trouble going after basically his greatest political enemy. And Poroshenko isn't even the most powerful oligarch. As I said, that's Renat Akhmedov. So far, the Zelensky administration has really done nothing to contest uh, Akhmedov's influence, nor have they done much to contest any of the other lesser-known or lesser-public oligarchs. And again, 
the question of Kolomoisky still remains. We've seen the Zelensky administration take moves that would harm Kolomoisky, but also he started his administration with a chief of staff who was Kolomoisky's personal lawyer. We've seen Irina Venediktova, the prosecutor general, not press charges against MPs from the president's party who are connected to Kolomoisky and have been credibly accused of corruption. So my gut feeling is that Zelensky will use this drive to go after the oligarchs that are personally or politically advantageous to him and leave others alone. But he's not going to be able to consolidate this influence or bring these oligarchs to heel as Putin did. He simply doesn't have the base of support, the popularity, or I would even argue the the personal capability of doing so. Yes, it's really hard to uh, play devil's advocate in the name of Medvedchuk because within any system that's even vaguely just, Medvedchuk would be brought down. It's as simple as that. Out of all the various oligarchs, some may be more powerful, some may be more politically active, but it's hard to say that any single one of them has played a more hazardous role than Medvedchuk himself. So even if this was a target against him rather than what Zelensky claims it to be, a a broader-based attack on the oligarchic system, no tears are shed on behalf of Medvedchuk. Yeah, no one likes him. Absolutely no one likes him. Even within the opposition platform, they had to pull him away from being the figurehead leader because it would just be a bad look, so they had to bring in others to actually stand in front of the TV cameras. But I also want to note that there is still all of the chances of the case against Medvedchuk falling apart. He is... Still an oligarch. He isn't in prison, and he still has powerful allies both within Ukraine and abroad. The Ukrainian court system, and again, listeners can refer to our episode on Pavlovovk for more details on that, is not well known for its ability to bring just conclusions in any sphere. And that includes open and shut corruption cases. And it's hard to argue that Medvedchuk's current case isn't open and shut. We've decided that this episode, we really needed to give some updates about the events in Belarus since the kidnapping of opposition journalist Roman Protasevich, rather than to do a unique topic. The Belarusian regime has released another video showing Roman in a state of distress and showing visible signs of physical abuse and torture. This video was meant as a public confession of wrongdoing but to treat it as one would be highly irresponsible. Those coerced confessions have been a common way for the regime to humiliate their opponents. The truth or falsehood of these confessions is irrelevant, really false, but irrelevant. The goal of releasing them is an act of power. Power over the person, for one, that they can be forced to do what the regime wants them to do, but also power over the truth itself. That is the ultimate goal of any dictator. For the official truth to be a matter of their own personal whims, and for people to have to repeat that truth, even if they know it to be false. Nobody is supposed to necessarily believe that Rahman was sincere in this video. That it was so unbelievable is part of the point. The larger the strain it takes to say that this falsehood is true, the greater the show of force by the regime. I'm sorry if that sounds overly polemical, But the duty of journalism is not simply to lay out data as it is presented. 
Frankly, I don't even think it was very ethical for the media to republish this video without the express consent of his family. The duty is to say what's happening, and that is what is happening. It's important not to allow the current focus on Protasevich to make it seem like he's the only one in that situation. And I'd like to draw attention to another dramatic case that happened on June the 1st. On that day, a man named Stepan Latipov was sitting at his legal hearing for the crime of participating in a mass protest. He was arrested in September of last year, and at one point during the hearing, he stood up and said, quote, Father, after meeting with you, Gbopik, and for our listeners, Gbopik is the acronym for the Interior Ministry of Belarus's main directorate for combating organized crime and corruption. So he was saying, Father, after meeting with you, Gbopik came to me and warned that if I didn't admit my guilt, then I would be thrown in a cell with hardened criminals and criminal cases would be launched against my relatives and neighbors. He then took out a pen and used it to cut his own throat. Bailiffs struggled to gain access to the cage. He was kept in the courtroom. They apparently couldn't find the right key. And another note for those who might not be aware, it's standard practice in most post-Soviet courts for the accused to be kept in a locked cage while they are in the courtroom itself. He was unconscious when he was taken to the hospital, though he is currently in a stable condition. Another illustrative case is outlined in a recent story in the Associated Press. Natalia Makovetskaya, the mother of Belarusian political prisoner Uladislav Makovetsky, reported that her son was made to wear a yellow badge indicating that they are a prisoner for political reasons. Uladislav was also reported to be made to declare that he is, quote, prone to extremism during morning prisoner lineups. He is in prison for allegedly assaulting police with a truncheon, though his supporters say that he was merely throwing the truncheon to the side after an officer dropped it while attacking other protesters. Natalia is not the only person attesting that this practice is taking place. Katerina Barasevich, a journalist for the now-dismantled news outlet Hoot.by, showed the one that she was forced to wear during her six-month prison sentence. It is hard to ignore the parallels between political prisoners wearing a yellow badge and the yellow badge worn by Jewish victims of the Holocaust. Belarus was one of the countries hit worst by the Holocaust and the Second World War more broadly. The regime is well aware of what that kind of imagery communicates. This is a throwback to the Soviet prison system and gulags, where the bulk of prison discipline was left in the hands of prisoners themselves. This is being done in order to single out and isolate political prisoners and mark them as being vulnerable to predators they share the facility with. It's a way of saying that they do not have any protection and are open to being brutalized on a whim. While it is not as institutionalized in the American prison system as it was in the gulag, it is not dissimilar from the prison gangs and crim expectation and frequent jokes that people will make about sexual assault in prison. But let's put these two examples in context of what Rahman is going through. Latipov was being coerced into a guilty plea by threatening his friends and family. If he did not submit to the repressions, the police would have gone after his loved ones instead, both as a show of force and the basic issue of needing to keep their numbers up to meet their quotas. Pratisevich is vulnerable to the same threats. When his plane was forced down and he was kidnapped, his girlfriend Sofia Sepega was taken along with him. She is also imprisoned and is vulnerable to any threats that the Lukashenko regime might want to make. If he does not cooperate, then they can hold their ability to hurt Sofia over his head. 
Well, there has not yet been a strong sign of Sophia being abused. That can change whenever the authorities want it to. And as demonstrated with the yellow badges, the regime doesn't even have to necessarily use prison guards or KGB agents to threaten Sophia. Just marking her out as free to attack is enough. It's a genuinely horrifying situation to be in. I can't even, just putting, trying to put myself in his shoes is just terrifying. But the last update to give related to Protasevich is more directly tied to Ukraine, unfortunately. Prosecutors from the Russian puppet entity have been sent to Minsk in order to interrogate him. They have likely arrived by now and have begun their interrogations. They are being allowed to do this because Roman is accused of being a fighter in the Azov Battalion, now regiment, in the early months of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Azov is tied to the Ukrainian far right and there are many real problems with them, but they are also the number one focal point for Russian propaganda and there have been many false stories and nonsense spread about them as well. And I say that as one who is not exactly a fan of the Azovs. That makes it really suspicious that no other Ukrainian media mogul or owner gave Azov more of a platform than Medvedchuk. They appeared on his channels. They have given interviews to his journalists multiple times. Not to sound like the conspiracy theorist like I often feel like I do, but maybe their use in Russia propaganda is not exactly accidental. I mostly bring it up because it is uh, an annoying piety by Russian Belarusian media to single out Azov when they certainly aren't exactly far away from them in ideology. But most importantly, there's no actual proof of Roman being a fighter with Azov. He was a journalist who embedded with them at the time and was even wounded with them when he was shot during an engagement. But other than that, it's a whole lot of conjecture. Not all, but much of this conjecture is in bad faith for no other reason but to justify his persecution. The officials who will question him will have made frequent use of torture, including for crimes as simple as displaying a Ukrainian flag. Handing Roman over to them is nothing more than a green light for him to be tortured even further. But on top of the human rights violations and the concern for Roman's safety, there's something else going on here. Up until recently, Minsk has positioned itself as a mediator in the Russo-Ukrainian conflict. The peace process, such as it is, is called the Minsk process because that is where it was being hosted. With Medvedchuk again being the former Ukrainian representative for the Minsk process, though that might be an artifact of the early years of the conflict. Right, and it being a Minsk process probably doesn't have much of a future. By inviting prosecutors from Russia's puppet republics in Donbass on official business, Lukashenko is implicitly recognizing those republics' legality with jurisdiction for any crimes committed there, which is a massive change. It is a recognition of the DNR and LNR as legal entities rather than as militant organizations. Yeah, it's fair to say that Ukrainian-Belarusian bilateral relations have disintegrated at this point, and we can see that Lukashenko no longer has any interest in holding up the pretense that he is not wholly in favor of one side of that conflict. Now, there have also been some Ukrainian sanctions against them, against Belarus, uh, as stated last episode, that there were that there is now a ban on flights to Belarus, and I believe economic sanctions are and also being sanctions as well are going through the legislative process. Belarus had previously positioned itself and has been able to kind of assert its independence from Russia 
partially by being the mediator in this conflict and by able by being able to reach out to multiple different groups within Europe, that's dead. That's completely dead by now. Couple of things I want to mention before we wrap this episode up. First, as purely the geopolitical side of things, I think it's fair to say that the Minsk Accords, Minsk II, is dead. Uh, it was dying by starts and fits prior to this. Um, but Lukashenko's recent actions in inviting LNR and DNR prosecutors to torture a journalist have more or less put a nail in that topic. What this means for the peace process going forward is currently unknown. And my second thought is with Roman Protasevich, and just for the record, I want to say that what is happening to him is something that has haunted me personally in my role as a journalist, especially a journalist working in this region. While I may not fear this kind of treatment from the Ukrainian side, Ukraine, for all of its flaws, doesn't torture journalists anymore. And Belarus, and to the degree that Belarus will be able to get away with this act, will be a flag and a signal to other dictatorships around the world about what they can get away with and how far they can go to, for example, bring down a passenger plane because it has someone they don't like on it. But before we wrap up completely, uh, I'd want to bring up one more issue that affects the people of Belarus more broadly, whether or not they're an oppositionist, whether or not they're a journalist. And that is because Belarus has effectively closed its border. Uh, the Belarusian regime has restricted anyone from leaving the country unless they have permanent residency in a separate country. Now, previously, if you had temporary residency, like, for example, what I have in Ukraine, you would be able to leave Belarus and go elsewhere. Now, if you're a Belarusian citizen and you do not have full residency within another country, you're stuck there. If you do not already have an escape route, you will not have one now. And this brings back some of the fears of the Soviet Union of just essentially being stuck and having to smuggle yourself out. If you re if a Belarusian really needed to escape the country as a last-ditch effort, the border between Belarus and Ukraine is a bunch of swamps, and I guess you're just going to have to sneak out the old-fashioned way. With the majority of countries in Europe closing access to Belarusian airspace, as well as preventing the Belarusian national air carrier from operating on their territory, there aren't a lot of options for Belarusians who need to escape the regime. However, Lukashenko, in what I can only assume is a fit of peak, has removed all border guards and patrols from the Belarus-Lithuanian border. This has already resulted in... Uh, I believe about 75 Belarusians attempting to cross and they were caught by the Lithuanian side. But it does seem like there could be a way for Belarusians to escape. If that situation changes, however, we really will be faced with a population trapped at the winds of their increasingly delusional and murderous dictator. Before we sign off, I'd like to ask you if any other thoughts from this week, any miscellaneous news items, anything that may have happened in the country that you took note of. Yeah, actually, I wanted to give an update on the Sergei Sternenko case. So when we'd previously covered it, he was facing charges of kidnapping, of torture. And I don't want to say that this is solely the result of the protests, though they likely played a role. But Sergei Sternenko 
is now a free man or relatively free. The kidnapping charges were found to have exceeded the statute of limitations and those charges were dropped. He has been sentenced to one year probation by the Odessa uh, District Appellate Court for illegal possession of weaponry and that illegal weaponry was a single 5.45 millimeter bullet that law enforcement discovered in his apartment. Uh, and his lawyers are appealing even that. And it's not technically correct to say that he is going free. It's the Ukrainian equivalent of what the American legal system would understand as time served. Because he's already been in prison, they say that his current, the current amount of time that he had spent in prison is the punishment that he was given. Yes, but he is not going to be imprisoned or uh, serve time in isolation, uh, which he would have if he was found guilty of kidnapping. Though, strangely, the court did say that they believe the prosecution's version of events uh, in terms of the kidnapping. And again, the Ukrainian justice system is neither just nor in really a strict sense, a system, much like the Holy Roman Empire. My extra bit of news goes a bit further afield to Israel, and among the many other news topics that have come out of that country recently, one of them is that it looks like there will be a change in government after several elections over the past two years. The agreements are in place in order to replace the government of Benjamin Netanyahu, with one under Naftali Bennett. Now, how this could affect Ukrainian Jews in particular and Ukrainian Jewish immigrants to Israel is that one hot-button political issue within Israel is the treatment of post-Soviet immigrants to the country by the religious authorities. Now, this is because many post-Soviet immigrants would not, according to Jewish law, be considered Jewish because they may have a Jewish father but not a Jewish mother, and the law is that Judaism is passed on through the mother. One way this manifests itself, for example, is through marriage laws. One must be Jewish according to the strictest interpretations of Jewish law in order to use the family law system there, which means that if an immigrant from Ukraine wants to get married and they do not have a Jewish mother, that means they cannot get married within Israel itself. One remedy for this situation has been through something called army conversions, where immigrants can receive a much easier conversion process than going through the normal religious court system. But anyway, how this could affect the changing government is that, one, there are no what's called Haredi parties within the new government, meaning that the usual religious authorities no longer have a seat at the table. And also that part of the new government will be the Israel Beitinu party, a party that mostly caters to the needs and interests of post-Soviet Russian-speaking immigrants, meaning that their issues will be front and center. This government has promised not to make any major changes. It is a largely caretaker government in place solely to get rid of Netanyahu, but this is one area where all the scales are tipped in favor of these Ukrainian immigrants who have faced numerous complications and problems with the government in the past. Those are our stories for the week. Thank you so much for listening. Ukraine Without Hype is an independent production by me, Romy Kogratsky, and Anthony Bardaway. 
please rate us, subscribe, and share it with your friends so we can keep bringing you the news in English from Ukraine.